this is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is... After I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Gibson and Danny McLean coming to you from the Ed Sullivan Show, and you're listening to episode number 45 of Baseball and Barbecue. Jeff Cohen is right here sitting with me. And you are Len Averman. And we are excited, as usual, to be with you for episode number 45. Think you're really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, and that actually was Denny McLean on the organ and Bob Gibson on the guitar during the episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. And it was very poignant and appropriate because on this week's show, we're talking to Sridhar Papu, who wrote The Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and The End of Baseball's Golden Era. And it was a fun interview. We learned a lot of history, and we delved right into this book, great book so Sridhar Papu thanks in advance for doing this interview with us yeah it was a, it really was about baseball history and American history during the 60s which was a very turbulent time and he actually goes back to tell stories of uh, Jackie Robinson's struggles and Mudcat Grant struggles and it just it was such a great book for any baseball fan it was a very difficult time for uh, some baseball players and for people just in general during that time it was the 60s very tough time very tough time you had vietnam you had race riots you had good times with the amendment landing on the moon right met 69 uh, and you also had woodstock but it was a very turbulent time for american history and if you guys um know the last two weeks we've been very busy. Uh, Jeff and I went to Barbecue Guru. They had a, uh, a special um, event in Warminster, uh, Warminster, Pennsylvania, and they had Bob Trudnack was there, of course, the the owner of uh, Barbecue Guru. Uh, Mo Kaysan was there. Uh, Lisa Jo Getter was there with her fiance, her mother, her grandmother. Uh, there were barbecue teams all cooking on the monolith grills that they sell. It was a great time. Lots of food. Uh, amazing food. Uh, we did some interviews, which probably you guys are expecting if you were listening to the uh, Tailgate Barbecue Show. But there's two things at play here. One, when I was on that show, I neglected to 
tell them that we were going to have Sridhar Papu on first. And second, we did not know that being two schmucks with a microphone, we, we did not, uh, some of the interviews we may have had an issue with. So we're going to check with our sound guy and hopefully we'll rectify the situation. But if not, uh, we'll, we'll let you guys know what's going on. So we apologize if you were expecting any of those interviews, but we will do the best we can. Right, Jeff? Well, we went, let's tell them about the day. We went out to uh, Pennsylvania, spent the day at Barbecue Guru headquarters. Right. They had, oh, what would you say, like 20 different uh, teams there, all using the monolith uh, Komodo grill. Right. So they all, the competition was based on the same equipment. Right, same equipment. The monolith is a Komodo grill, and then, which is a ceramic cooker, and then they have what's uh, barbecue Guru, their temperature control system, which is on each grill. What was the most unusual food you ate that day, Jeff? I would think the donut with the bacon and the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, cardiac delight. Yes, right? it was. Yes. Uh, they took the glazed donut. They, they sliced it like you'd slice a roll. Glazed side up, cheese on top, couple of strips of bacon, then the other half over that, and then they put that on the grill. It was very good. Yeah, it was a pretty good uh, little delight there. It was good. And on the monolith, they made pizzas. Pizzas. They, right, uh, the ribs, brisket. I mean, there were just, you, you name it, there, it was chicken, there was everything. Right. It was everything. It was very good, very good. I think I ate three times my weight in barbecue. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. And we, we, like I said, we interviewed all these people, and um, we'll do the best we can to get them on. But either way, it was a great day. Uh, Barbecue Guru, we thank you. We thank you, Lisa Joe Getter. And thank you again for, uh, for just a great day. Yeah, and... Bulk of this episode is going to be on the Year of the Pitcher by Sridhar Papu. And Len, did you know how I got Mr. Papu to uh, come on our show? You asked? I asked. But, actually, I was at a barbecue of our mutual friend John John Krause. And his brother-in-law, Joaquin Carrells, is a friend of Sridhar. And I was talking about the podcast, and he said, give me your card, and uh, I'll have Shridhar give you a call. And lo and behold, next thing I know, Shridhar's on our, on our, on our show. Selling books. I'm sure I'm sure now this book's going to go to number one. It, it, it should. And you really, if, if you're a baseball historian, a baseball fan, uh, Bob Gibson, Denim claimed what a historic season 1968 was, get the year of the pitcher. Available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and old bookstores. Just Google it, and you'll get you'll get it. So now let's listen to the interview with Sridhar Papu, the Year of the Pitcher. We are honored to have with us tonight Sridhar Papu, who is the author of the Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, and the End of Baseball's Golden Age. Basically, a book about the 1968 season, but much more than that. Sridhar Papu is a columnist for the New York Times. He began his award-winning career as a feature writer for the Chicago Reader and has served as a columnist 
at the New York Observer, correspondent for The Atlantic, and a staff writer at Washington Post and Sports Illustrated. Welcome, Sridhar. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. We, we're got to tell you, we really enjoyed your book. It was like uh, stepping back in time. It was, it, as I read your book, it was like uh, being immersed in history. It was it was so much more than a baseball book. So we're going to talk about that. A- absolutely. It was, it, that, let's start there, Sridhar. I mean, nineteen sixty eight was a transformative year in, in in the history of the United States with uh, the riots, the Vietnam, the assassinations of MLK and RFK, the civil rights movement, and all this is going on. And you have this historic baseball season. Tell us how you got into writing this book. I guess the short answer really is, I mean, you know, if you're a student of American history and love this game, I mean, 1968 sticks out for you. You know, one of the great things about finding a game when you're young, and I don't know whether it's true of current generations or not, but, you know, you sort of fall in love with this history because it sort of goes on with it, and we can talk about how that may or may not be problematic going forward. But when you think about 1968, and the sort of turbulent year that it was, and you want to sort of address it. You know, when when most baseball people say 1968, immediately the two things people say are Danny McLean, 31 wins, and Bob Gibson, 1.12. And, you know, it started off for me kind of exploring both the baseball and the year. And what I really discovered actually really quickly is that if I, if I, if I strayed too far, and I sort of had to put clamps down on how far I went and always sort of related back to the game. I was going to end up with a half good history book and a half good baseball book that would, you know, satisfy no one. <laughs> so in that regard, you know, it had a much wider scope with a, with a, a lot more characters and, and it was going to talk about, and it does, you know, talk about larger issues, but, you know, I really tried to sort of ground it, if you were, in a way that I could talk about it with some authority, in a way that I could talk about it with in a way that, you know, sometimes that people hadn't heard of before, and also in a way that I can unpack myth about not only the importance of the game in 68, and again, we can talk about this in relation to Detroit, but, you know, what the presence of sports really was in America, and, and actually, you know, there's a little bit of soul-searching, which you can actually sort of see in the book about, you know, me coming to grips with, uh, about what that means, because, you know, there is that kind of, I guess, tried and true narr- narration now that of uh, sports was, um, can help heal a city and, you know, all those kinds of stuff. And, you know, when the book came out, actually, it was right, I think, around Houston's World Series win, right, 17. Yeah, right. And, you know, and then people are like, well, you know, the city really needs that. I'm like, well, you know, Houston needs better infrastructure. <laughs> you know, mm. you don't necessarily need, you know, the Astros. And so... Detroit, especially that myth of the 68 Tigers, you know, reuniting the city after the riots, and I write about the riots in the book, because it's actually really related to baseball, as it ties into the myth of that team and the importance of that team and by certain people. But, you know, there's a lot, there was a lot for me to unpack personally as I, as I, as I went about it. And so, you know, we deal with these larger social aspects, but it's, I always try to make it you know, relatable, or try to sort of go back and, and uh, root it within the, the context of the game. Well, let's go back to what you said a couple, you said some very good points here, and I, one thing, 
to go back to is how far you would go between it being a history book and sports, and then you can go off on you know where you reined it in. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it was you're talking about different players, whether it's you know Johnny Sane or uh, you know Jackie Robinson or you know Dan McLean and Gibson and 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 the managers and and all these people. And as you're talking about them, you did extend out because then you're talking about the racist manager, um, you know, of course, Seamus, or I forget the guy's name exactly, but, uh, or you're talking about another part. You, there are people that you bring into this story that had, that were involved in all of these players' lives, I found very interesting that I didn't know about, that you saw how they shaped uh, the way these players became or interacted in their lives, and I thought that that was great. So maybe you had to rein it in at some point, but I'm glad you didn't rein it in too much because I love the the that whole you know learning about the players they came in contact or the people they came in contact to. Yeah, I mean there are characters. Um, in the book, who I mean, Mike Cat Grant, you know, for example, who um, I absolutely love as <laughs> a person to interview, but you know, he becomes a character in the book because he had played with Gibson, and, and we can talk about Johnny Stain in a bit. But because Gibson and McLean were essentially orphans, I mean, you know, their mothers were there, and, and they go to another life. That so many of the people that they dealt with from the time they were a young men, whether it be uh, Gibson's brother Bob or Sally Hemis, uh, his first manager with the Cardinals, you know, all these kinds of people that would shape, you know, their personalities, how they view the world, helped me sort of bring them to life and explain to, you know, how Bob Gibson became Bob Gibson, how Denny became Denny. They're vastly different guys, as you know. And so, yeah, I mean, you can't write in too much and just focus and get sort of too uh, focused, especially on, on Gibson and McLean. You know, my first feeling was, you know, whenever you're looking at somebody, are they important in relation to the story? Are they are they helping bring the central protagonist to life? And presence of, you know, of, of a certain player and their story enriched the book. I mean, I don't think that the book would have benefited by, you know, me going into the biography of Mike Shannon, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm actually looking at um, a book bookshelf at October 1964, and, you know, essentially, I mean, as much as I love that book, it's also, you know, what Albert Sam did in that book, those chapters and telling that season, was also sort of a series of mini-biographies. And, you know, especially because I dealt with the Cardinals, and his book did as well, I just kind of wanted to focus in on people, oh, obviously Gibson, but, you know, sort of keep my orbit as relatively small, as I said. Right. That's not to say that it doesn't expand, because, I mean, my original vision for the book uh, starts in 1966 with building the St. Louis Arch, and instead it starts in 1934. <laughs> so, you know, it's things happen. And the other thing that you said that I found uh, very interesting before, and, and you point out in the book, and it becomes, you know, blatantly obvious, is how we do think that a game is just going to make everything better, and that must have been a great time, and and everyone must have just been holding hands and, you know, and thinking great thoughts. You know what I mean? And, and, and it turns out it's not that way. And, and 
we dramatize and you know with our sports teams and think that you know when our city wins a World Series that everything's just going to be great and obviously that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, so early on, especially before I started doing my like reporting, there is a, a myth built around the state Tigers because the '67 riots happened the year before. Willie Horton, I respect a lot. I like a lot. I'm proud he spent time with me. Is is famously quoted as saying, "You know, the TCA Tigers were put on Earth uh, to help heal the city." Well, they weren't. I mean, <laughs> they were, uh, and the second, and then there's also probably this. I want I want to call it an abhorrent uh, documentary that HBO did a number of years ago called "City on Fire," and with that sort of bias and that trope. But the second you sort of, you know, dig a little, a little deeper, you start you you immediately find out that's not true. And and you know, I think a lot about what the book is about is it's about limits, the limits of how great a picture can be, how great, uh, how much impact a sport can have, and you know how much uh, baseball a baseball team can do to help heal or fix a city that. You know, that has never really been healed. I mean, with the racial conflict of 1967 that resulted in the worst race riot in American history, it decimated Detroit, and it was during a doubleheader of a Tigers Yankees game. You know, these were, this was a systemic thing that had been building up for years and years and years, and, you know, eviscerated the city, and it's never really recovered. And so, you want, you want to believe in these things, right? I mean, you want to say, oh, you know, we, we all felt so good and, and, you know, we all came together and we really, really needed it at that time in our lives. And, you know, whether Detroit was better off for winning that uh, state series, I mean, you know, of course the fans were, but it doesn't solve the, the, the problems of poverty or racial division or, you know, anything like that. And, and moreover, I mean, one of the more interesting things you find when you start to start digging is they like to call in Detroit with the day the, the Tigers won uh, Game 7, I was like this happy, peaceful riot, and then I found a story in the Detroit News where someone's destroying, like breaking into a department store, and a policeman says, "Yeah, I hope these people like their baseball because I, I really don't want the Tigers in the World Series." <laughs> so you know, these things are, are just complicated, and they're far more complicated than I can certainly take on in the context of writing about baseball. And but what I can sort of lay it out is like the evidence of well, this is what it did, and this is the myth and how they were created and how we build them up, and, you know, I can't offer solutions to them because I'm not a social scientist or a politician or what have you, but it was just really important for me to, to sort of not only say this isn't true, but explain why it's not true. So, and, you know, I mean, I guess that sort of, like, especially as time went on, and even in the writing of the book, you know, I just didn't want to be sentimental because I think a lot about baseball does, and we can point to movies, the books that sort of prop this up, you know, there is this sort of, you know, over, uh, uh sentimentalization, that's even a word, of, of the game, and, you know, it's linked between fathers and sons, and, you know, all this stuff, and, you know, stuff that, you know, I just never realized that, so, I mean, I just wanted to give a, a really very clear, uh, idea of, of, of the game, what it can do, and, and also, just um, taking a look at certain stories and certain myths and saying, well, this isn't true, and here's why. Yeah, during those, those sad days during the riots, you had players actually 
was part of the National Guard. It wasn't that Mickey Lolich uh, out there after a game or had to miss some games to, to guard the city? Yeah, so he actually, most of your probably don't remember this, but the riots happened in the early morning of, before this doubleheader started, and he actually started game one. And, you know, the, there's a myth that's been also built up that he changed straight from his uh, Tigers uniform into his National Guard uniform because I think I want to say, and it's been a while since I looked at that number, maybe one-third of baseball players were in the National Guard. So he was called up to his guard unit, and but the common thing around Detroit is that he changed straight from his Tigers uniform into his guard uh, uh, outfit. What actually happened was he drove home to the suburbs after losing, I think, what is his 10th straight game, got a call, and basically drove back in and he missed time uh, with the guard. And then really missed, you know, good chunks of the next season um, to, uh, with guard duty as well. And it, and it really affected his, you know, for a good uh, a good part of the next Right, right. Uh, let's, let's, let's get back to some hardcore hardcore baseball because uh, sure. I want to talk about some of the baseball history that because uh, I kind of pride myself of being a baseball historian and I think Len does also but there are things in this book that uh, we just never knew and uh, I was fascinated how great a, a pitching coach Johnny Sane was I mean I knew Sane, Spawn and Sane and Play for Rain but but uh, Sane was a uh, a really a guru when it came to pitching, pitching coaches, and he has, uh, I guess, a, a line that goes down to Leo Mazzoni and, and, and their pitchers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was such a weird thing because, like, as like in the very first thing you start to look at, you know, when you're looking at secondary sources, you know, John Sane's name came up really early, and I just got, I was very curious, and then uh, John Warden, who had a very short tenure as a um, relief pitcher for the Tigers, but is one of the most enjoyable people um, you'll ever be around, and uh, is from Cincinnati, um, around where I'm from. And and then he and, uh, I, I talked about Zane, and it just kept coming up. You just kept seeing it and seeing it, and I just sort of plunged into it. And yeah, everyone thinks about Spawn and Zane and the famous crime. Johnny, but Johnny Zane and I, my admiration for John Zane is, uh, doesn't come across like I just. I absolutely love this man. <laughs> I love writing about him. I love learning about him. I, you know, because, you know, if this book is called about the, the year of the pitcher, you can't write about that without writing about the greatest pitching coach of all time. And it goes back to his days in the Army where he served in um, the reserves with um, Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams. And he'd been a sort of middling pitcher until uh, then. And then he just started sort of think, uh, um, exploring, you know, uh, precepts of aerodynamics and, and, and so on. And then, you know, he had, you know, sort of an okay career after the Braves and, and with the Yankees. And, but when that ended, he became a pitching coach of the Yankees and right immediate, immediately both used a combination of science and, you know, these motivational books to, to sort of get into the, the head of his players and, you know, worked with Whitey Ford and uh, Jim Bowden. He's, in, he's a hidden ball for and Ralph Carey, and then moves on to the Twins, and he, you know, transforms the careers of Jim Cott and Matt Grant, and then goes to the Tigers, which I think is, is probably his greatest accomplishment in trying to get the most out of Mickey Lolich and Danny McLean, both of whom were incredib- uh, incredibly difficult to deal with <laughs> in their own different ways, and then goes, to, and then, you know, after that, after the year uh, of 60, uh, after 69, 
you know, he ends up with um, the Chicago White Sox, where you know he works with Wilbur Wood, and you know, and, and Russ for the face of Cosgrave again. And so, like, you know, every fascinating and, and learning about Spain, uh, about Spain, and uh, what he is this constant search for. He was always looking for something. He was always trying to understand, you know, how to make a pitcher better. And Mazzoni gets him a lot of credit for everything that, and he taught to his people when, when he was the coach of the Braves. And so, you know, baseball is, you know, there aren't um, hitting or pitching coaches in, 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 in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but I would argue that they were ever to start that, that the search would start with Johnny Dane. The, the book is called The Year of the Pitcher, Bob Gibson, Denny McClain, and the End of Baseball's Golden Age. Let's uh, focus in on uh, Denny McClain, who was a, I would say, a complicated fellow. I mean, he was a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a self-promoter. He was obviously a great pitcher for, I guess, a short period of time. And he also, you, you write in your book that he played the organ a lot. He was an organist. Uh, so tell us about Denny McClain and what you found out researching the book. Well... I mean, I think, you know, Denny had the right idea. It's just that he missed the mark by, like, you know, five feet. You know, I mean, he really understood the value of himself um, beyond baseball and that, you know, that he had to build a career for himself and, you know, and did endorsements and, you know, famously he drank anywhere between, and I've seen so many numbers, anywhere between 10 to... 15 to 20 bottles of Pepsi a day, and so he was a spokesman for Pepsi, and, you know, of course, destroyed his teeth. But, yeah, he had this career where he thought that baseball was going to lead him to play in the organ. And remember, this is 1968, so, you know, like, and he actually cut an album, and I haven't listened to it, but, you know, Eddie McClain plays the organ, and he's playing these, you know, uh, these sort of old standards, and uh, one of the funnier things, and I think you can find it, I found it on YouTube, was um, after the World Series, he plays organ on uh, Ed Sullivan, and Bob Gibson uh, chimes in with a guitar, and I find that clip was pretty funny, but, you know, Denny's, talking about Denny being complicated, I mean, Denny grew up, uh, his father was an alcoholic, and he really pushed him, and was really hard on him, but when Denny's died, uh, dad died, I think when he was like around 12, he just became super reckless, and... In, in terms of everything, and it built up, built up, built up, and so by the time he got to the major league, he was sort of completely out of control, and and when you talk about him being a self-promoter, he was, I wouldn't say the poor man's Joe Namath, it's just that Joe Namath got the culture, fit into the zeitgeist, I guess you could say that, and and Danny just didn't quite get it, I mean, he, he knew what he wanted, he wanted fame, and was going to use baseball to get it. It's just that he didn't really understand how to do it. And so, um, to his own peril, because, you know, I mean, you know, he's been in jail multiple times. He's gotten in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of mystery surrounding this mysterious uh, injury he had uh, going down the, the stretch of the 1967 tenant race, the most competitive tenant race in, in, in baseball history among uh, four different teams. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, trying to understand any playing and uh, his motivation. Um, I mean, you can trace it back to his father uh, passing away, and yeah, it's just, I mean, he, it, it's, it's just so strange, because he actually, if you even look back at those old interviews, it's like, he really had this idea and, and sense of brand that we see in mo- the modern athlete. It's just that he somehow uh, thought it was, it was going to come, you know, playing 
in a casino uh, wearing a neighborhood jacket uh, versus you know, something else. Now he had, you mentioned in the book something, um, he had a relationship with Charlie Dressen, right? Yeah. And Charlie Dressen passed away. Yeah. And then it's interesting because you said something in here, uh, well, Willie Horton believed that had Charlie Dressen lived, and I'm just reading directly from your yeah. book, perhaps Danny would have changed. Dressen would have stayed on him, watched him. He would have done what so many found impossible, made sure of Denny's well-being. And it, when I read that, I thought of another sport, boxing, and a certain uh, famous boxer, Mike Tyson, uh, who also had a mentor, Customato. Yeah. And a lot of people have said that when Customato died, that was when Mike Tyson, you know, was let loose and, and changed and whatever. If if Customato had lived, then maybe it would be different. And I just, I found that interesting, the parallel, obviously the different sports, but a mentor like that had that much uh, influence over him. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much uh, stock I've put in that or not, but, I, you know, he was a guy who was looking for a father figure. I mean, that was evident, and I think he found one both in his father-in-law, who's Lou Boutreau, and to a certain extent, but, you know, with trust in, you know, definitely, and, you know, to go back to Sane, you know, Sane came in, looked at his talent, and said, okay, how can I reach this guy, <laughs> and, you know, and, and approached him in a way that said, well, he's interested in flying planes, which he did, and, you know, got into trouble with it later in life, and so the stuff they would talk about was about aerodynamics, um, and he basically was like, uh, you know, giving him a, a spoonful of medicine, you know, and, and candy. So, <laughs> um, he should not be a better picture without was secretly um, not saying, not actually letting Kenny know that he was actually learning something. But, but I think it's a good point. It's just I think the closest person to ever controlling him was was Dressen because Mayo Smith, who took over the Tigers, really did not have control of that team and. You know, they famously said, I think in 67, uh, someone was like, let's win it for Mayo. And, and then someone said, well, let's win it uh, in spite of Mayo. <laughs> and so, um, you know, had you know, Charlie been there and, you know, I mean, Charlie Justin, who was Jeffy Robinson's favorite ma- uh, manager, you know, had he been there, then, you know, quite possibly McLean would have uh, kept things under control. But, mm-hmm. again, we'll, we'll never know. Here's something else from the book that I, that I I'm going to read this. Because, well, I'll tell you why in a second. Nobody can escape the tensions of 1967, the young Vesey wrote, that's George Vesey, the columnist, of the increased violence in baseball. Not even a high-salaried baseball player accustomed to a good living, to the cheering of fans, to professional pride. He is being bugged, whether he knows it or not. Vietnam is bugging him one way or the other, and the high cost of living is bugging him one way or the other, and the overcrowding of cities and race. Take away Vietnam, and that could have been written today. You know, it's amazing to me how that is something that apparently has never changed, and even though salaries of players are they pale in comparison to what they are now. Even back then, baseball players were considered to be 
higher priced or higher salaried than the average, um, you know, average person. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I forget where, the, where, where that where that book is. Maybe I have uh, you know, George Wright interviewed the book and it was great. Just because you know he's one of the smartest people um, uh, you could ever meet and and has a memory that's uh, amazing. But I think that was in the context of violence in baseball and sport magazine. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, part of, one of the things that was interesting to me was, you know, I set out to write a book about a sport that was intertwined with American life at a time when American life was, for for younger people, it's hard to imagine a more turbulent time than, you know, than we're in now. But, you know, 1968 was it. And what I found, for the most part, with ball players, you know, and there were exceptions, that they, you know, were inside a bubble. And while, you know, athletes from other sports and there are a variety of factors to this. Um, we're much more, you know, I guess those might call it socially engaged or um, involved in thinking about the world because of just um, their background. You know, baseball players, you know, were almost at a arm's length from what was going on. So, but that's not to say they didn't care. And so, I mean, I, you know, I, didn't, I, I hope that people didn't, you know, think I was cynical and, you know, and sort of addressing that kind of stuff. But, but it is to say that, like, yeah, yeah, they were affected, but not to, and not to the extent that we necessarily wanted them to be. I mean, as athletes in in, uh, in that time, because you know, asking them what they remember about the time, asking them, you know, how they felt. In a lot of cases, they were part. They were uh, removed from it, and it, it was. But you know, a large majority of Americans also were too, because you know, when when these bigger events are going on, people were still going to work. People still had jobs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me let me uh, go to the other picture that you profile in the book, uh, Bob Gibson, who I believe uh, grew up in Nebraska. Is that true? He did. Yeah. Okay. He uh, people have he, he has the persona of uh, when he's pitching out there. Like, I, and I don't want to sound I don't want to sound bad saying this, but like a uh, angry black man when he's on the mound. But away from the away from the baseball. Playing the guitar, he, he's more aloof with his with his teammates. Tell us about Bob Gibson. He was obviously one of the greatest who ever played the game, but he had that that toughness that you don't see. You didn't see then, and well, he, he you saw it with him, but you, you don't see it really today. Well, first off, you shouldn't feel bad saying that because, and his name is Steve you now. He's an outfielder for the Astros. Uh, um, used that, that exact uh, trait. <laughs> but there was that persona that there that. Where he looked like he was seething and and uh, and just, just angry um, when someone came to the plate, and I mean, you know, and he said, "Well, you know, I, I wasn't wearing my glasses, so I just squint." But he also said, "You know, this is a creation that I that I sort of thrived in. You know, if a, if, if a batter is being intimidated, secondly, they walked in the batter's box about what 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 he's going to do, and he wasn't going to hit. That's the other thing." Uh, he was not a headhunter, but he, he did throw inside. You know, it's a, and you know, he famously didn't talk to people at all-star games. Uh, you know, didn't socialize with people from other teams, and that was all about you know finding this way to um, be a better player than anyone else. And I mean, that's and that's what uh, found what worked. Now, conversely, if you talk to anyone that played with him, uh, they talk about the most jovial. Uh, most hysterical teammate um, that they've ever played with. You know, he was funny. 
had uh, made impersonations. He would make, he would impersonate like Willie Mays and do all these kinds of stuff. And, and he was just like a fun guy to be around because you were on a team. And um, and he really bought into it. And especially the Cardinals. You have to remember the '60s. First that '64 team, and then the '67 team. They were really a, a tight knit group. And the '68, '7, '68 team. And you know Roger Maris, who had come over from the Yankees. There was almost like when he when he did. There was almost like a sigh of relief, and you know he was happy. He was happy playing in St. Louis, and they would do these things like singing songs after they came, after they won, and you know had a money trunk, and Orlando Cepeda would leave these chairs, and, and Gibson bought into it, and you wouldn't think he did, but you know he played in the in the team band, and so it, it, it's a persona that he built up over the years, and 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 that exists today, and 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 how we perceive him, and but. You know, once you sort of drill down, I mean, it's a much different person. But you know, I mean, he could be, I mean, he's he be super cold to the press, very cold. He didn't have much use for autograph speakers or you know, quite like his fans at that period, and and was kind of a reserved guy, and and used used that baseball persona to keep a lot of people at bay. So I mean, in that regard, it was really interesting. I mean, it, one of the more me though was he was also kind of angry he wasn't getting any work until that that other players that especially white players were getting and you know deservedly so but if you put yourself out there in such a way on the field and as standoffish as, as mean that's that you have to work extra hard you know to get that, that stuff and you know he, he, and then actually after the 67 series he did I mean I I famous I have a, a, a terrible half hour of TV show of a episode of a band where he's uh, a co-star and watching it just makes you cringe. <laughs> <laughs> no. Right. Uh, you know, what, what you just mentioned, how uh, white players got more endorsement and, and whatnot, what, I guess, I was taken aback when I read the book, I, that Roger Maris was given a beer distribution by the Bush Cup family, and, and, and he was only there for a year or two, whereas Bob Gibson was uh, an icon in, in, in St. Louis, Played for three, uh, two World Series teams and three championship teams, and, and was not even offered that. I found that uh, you know, I, I felt really bad. Being like, wow, how come he didn't get anything? Yeah, I was actually appalled. I mean, one of the, the conditions that Maris had for coming back in '68 was that he was going to get the spirit distribution, and he did. And they, you know, and they made, his, he and his family made a, made a lot of money, you know, off that, obviously. And and Gibson naturally thought he was going to get one, and I think. The 1972 works. There's a strike in '72. Like whatever bad feelings came out uh, between him and and Gussie Bush, basically resulted in, in him not getting that distributorship. And it's a real shame. I mean, like you said, it's Roger. When you think about Roger Maris, you do not think of him as a St. Louis Cardinal, mm-hmm. and yet he was given the best retirement gift you could possibly get. And Bob Gibson wasn't, and nor was Lou Brock. And it really doesn't make very much sense to me, especially since Gibson. Yeah, I mean that that was really shocked. That was that's a terrible, a terrible thing. I I mentioned that your book is more, is not just a baseball book, but the history book. And with baseball history, you wrote a lot about Jackie Robinson in this book. And uh, we always think of we hear Jackie Robinson, great ball player, great civil rights activist. You know, one of the most iconic people around. Obviously, they they retired his number across across baseball, across the world of baseball. 
But he, you know, as a as a parent, as a father, he had his troubles. Like, which I, I was shocked to read in his book. His his son was involved in Vietnam, uh, got into drug problems. I mean, you never you never think something someone like Jack Robinson would have, I guess, problems like like everyday people. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I mean, when, when I when I talk about the book deals with a larger issues of race and, and events of '68 and and you know the death of Martin Luther King, and you know they were very very good. Uh, good I don't think I'm, it's, it's 
whole world is completely chaos, he, he felt the need that, yes, okay, I have to be here. And, yeah, it, it's, it's extraordinary. Well, well, well said. I mean, he, he died at uh, age 53, I believe, at diabetes, but maybe that burden contributed to his uh, dying so young. It didn't help, it, that's for sure. Yeah, no, it didn't. No, it didn't, absolutely. One last question from me. You, you, the subtitle of your book is, and the end of baseball's golden age. 1969, a new era comes, lowering the pitcher's mound, the division play. So what, what do you mean when you said by the uh, the end of baseball's golden age? Well, I think that, well, I mean, you know, if we were to look at baseball and, you know, how you interpret golden age means a lot of things because, you know, for, for me, the my golden age is from, like, 1987 to 1990 when watching the Reds, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and Eric Davis, um, and, fi- and finally win the World Series. But, you know, I think what I, what I mean by golden age is that, and this might reveal something about something else I'm interested in, and, and, but in terms of comic books, there's, there's a golden age, and then there's a silver age, and then bronze age. But really, I mean, in 1968, the golden age, this is the period, you know, after that first wave of African-American players um, after Robinson had, you know, dramatically changed the game with the likes of Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and, and Clemente and, and so on. And then and then you see, you know, the golden age of, of pitching um, that had been building all through the 1960s and, and the dominance of, of guys like, you know, Gibson and McLean. But not only them. I mean, uh, um, you know, there's Tucker devoted to Don Drysdale on his great streak. And, you know, it's also, I think, the last year of baseball's preeminent sport in America because you see in 68 that warning signs about its future and its place in American life. You, you see rumblings of that, and they know it, too. I mean, and so you see the influx of football and the importance of television and all these different kinds of things that help. I still think baseball's the greatest sport in the world, but in 1968, they don't know how to do television, you know, and you know what did the NFL, and watching game footage from the World Series event, and then watching Super Bowl three, which happened only a few months later, it's just this contrast is unbelievable, and that television was going to play such a big role in our lives, and how we, how we follow sports, and so, and baseball didn't know, quite know how to deal with that, and didn't know how to quite deal with how to be a modern game, and I think we're dealing with that right now. Um, honestly, but then they're like, "Well, we'll be a we'll be a modern game by having you know, playing in these you know multi-purpose astroturf stadiums and 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 like you know trying to be cool like in in ways that didn't really work." Um, and you know, and, and of course, you know, the seventies come along and you know these great, fantastic teams and this show where I, I grew up and uh, led by the bigger machine, but. Um, <laughs> really was the end of baseball's just dominance as the number one sport in America. I mean, it's a very famous anecdote, and for those, even if you don't like football, uh, Michael McCambridge's America's Game about the NFL is one of the best uh, book about the history of, of the sport, and uh, Pete Rozelle, the late NFL commissioner, he would pop open a bottle of champagne the, uh, the day after the World Series ended, and okay, now... Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> now when I turn on ESPN, I don't even know what month it is. Like, how did football right. start that? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Shridhar, one of the things that I find fascinating when I look at a book like this 
is the amount of research that goes into it. And you, at the end of the book, you have, you know, a bibliography of all these books that you've, uh, you know, consulted. You have endnotes. And just, I'm sure that this question could probably take a very long time to answer. So it's kind of, I'm asking you to kind of just sum it up. But how does, you, you take on a project like this, and one of the things I read was you you told the uh, the publisher I'll have it to you in thirteen months, and they said to you you know that's kind of unrealistic you know you, you, it's going to take longer, and it did. How do you go through this and and the research involved and who to contact and speaking to all these contacts and just take us through how you do a book like this and like I said. <laughs> That's a long question, but I- I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, I mean, you know, occasionally, and I, I think every uh, author has this. You look at, uh, I-, I was working on this baseball, on this baseball project now, and I-, and I had to consult my own book. And I was just looking at the end notes, like, how did I do this? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I didn't really know, but start off thinking, you, you start off kind of with weird assumptions, okay? Yeah. I know I can get this person to talk to me. I know I can get this person to talk to me. And then they don't, or, or like, you know, you know, in the original post, John Spain and Jackie Robinson did not come up. I mean, like, at all. And and then once you start exploring it, you want to sort of bring these things, you know, out. And so, you know, you read every book. And whether it's going to be valuable or not, sometimes a lot of them are art. And then you, you, you make, if you're a baseball person, you make that pilgrimage to Cooperstown. And you have to do it in the dead of winter because that's when um, it's cheap to stay there. And I mean, it's, and the town is there's no light; it's just dark. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you, you spend hours in the library of the Hall of Fame, and and, and then making photocopies. I mean, I think I would do it kind of like now in terms of like there are two tubs full of, uh, of photocopies in my uh, my house. But, but then you go through the New York Public Library and find Holdridge's Sport Magazine, and then go through. And then you call journalists who were alive then, and 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 talk to them. And so you just reach the you 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 feel like you have to reach out to everyone because and whether because you just don't know you just don't know. I mean, one of the most vivid scenes in the book is the you know members of the Tigers watching the city burn on this yacht, mm. and that story came from this, uh, Trace Whiskey, name I always butcher, and. He was like the last call I had to make. I didn't want to make it. And I, and I called. And I said, you know, uh, and, and, and um, he's also Sandy Kovacs, his best friend. And so when, um, and remembered everything. And I said, well, I don't know if you remember. It's like, I remember exactly it. And he laid out what had happened. And then he and his wife driving the, the gross point the next day through the city of Detroit. And then I had to find someone to back it up. And then Al Kaline, I said, you know, do you remember anything? It's like, I remember the boat. I'm like, okay, thank you. I can use it. Mm-hmm. And I'm fortunate because, also because this is a generation I'm writing about that still, at least when I was reporting it, picked up their home phone. Right. So, they, I could find them kind of easily. And, and that generation, even the stars are, um, are willing to talk about, you know, what they saw and, and what they experienced and, and were willing to open up. So, in a lot of cases, they don't remember much, but then, you know, there are people that do, and, you know, quite vividly. And so you just have to keep, you know, talking to everyone. And what do you have, 
you you mentioned that you were working on something else. What what's next? Uh, what's next on the horizon? Ah, uh, but you don't want to break an exclusive here on the on baseball and barbecue. It's a, it's a, it's a collaborative project. I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. Um, well, can we at least ask you that when it does come out, will you come on the show and promote it and talk about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and then, um, I'll probably um, have my my collaborators on as well. Per- terrific. Uh, you you can read uh Sridhar's writings on uh, his website sridharpapu dot com. Yeah, you, you write not just sports. You go into media, politics, life. So you, you really do the gambit. And uh, we appreciate you uh, spending a few minutes here on baseball and, and, and BBQ. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was, it was really enjoyable. Thank you. We, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. So, Len, we uh, learned a lot from that uh, interview, didn't we? Yes, we did. So, what's next? Well, next we're going to have... First, before we do what's next... Let me just say that I didn't really get to talk about this much at the beginning. Oh, let, let, let me. Len was a guest on the Tailgate Guys BBQ podcast with Steve Koa and Lindell Scranton. Len, you were very good. Thank you very much. We spoke about the World Series, which uh, they asked me my prediction. And it's going on right now. And I did predict that the Nationals were going to win it. Went out on a limb there because a lot of people are picking the oh, Astros. You got a 50 50 chance. Right. And then they really they put me on the spot, Jeff. They asked me a tough one. And I can't believe I I, I did what what I what did I do on this one question? You pulled a Ralph Crandon. You went humana humana humana. Yeah, they asked me what was uh, one of my favorite interviews. Now, our interviews, we enjoy all of them. Asking me my favorite interview is like asking who your favorite child is. You just cannot do it. At the t- But when they asked me, I should have had a list. I should have had, you know, like you said, I should have had a list and I could have rattled off the names of various people. Well, Len, Len I did hear the interview, and you did list one person as one of your favorites. You did say Lindell Scranton. Right. Yes. Yeah, and then he told me the check was in the mail, right. and I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> But anyway, it was a great interview with them. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy their podcast. Uh, the two of them were, uh, one was a sports editor, and one, uh, Lindell was a uh, writer, a sports writer, and... Um, he was on our show, episode 44. Yeah, yeah, go listen to that, and it was a lot of fun. So I enjoyed being on their episode, on their podcast. And how did you enjoy doing it solo? I... I needed you. I needed you. I needed to be reined in. I definitely have an issue with not shutting up. Let's put <laughs> we're going to really put it that way. Uh, I needed you to, you know, give me the cutoff. I, I noticed there were several times when they wanted to say something and I just kind of bulldozed them. But, you know, what What do you want? They're, I'm, a, I'm a New Yorker who likes to talk. You go on and on. <laughs> right, like the Energizer. And on and on. The Energizer Bunny of and on talk. and on and on and on. <laughs> yes. But anyway, now we're going to go on with our interview with none other than Mark Porver. Mark Porver is uh, a master butcher. And if you're wondering what that is, well, I think you're going to find out once you listen to this. So, Mark Porver. Baseball and barbecue fans, we are here with Mark 
And I, I, it's funny, you're a master butcher and yes. I'm a master butcher of names. So I'm going to say the name and you're going to correct me. Okay, go okay. ahead. Okay, Mark Pauver. Not too bad, Mark Pauver. Okay. <laughs> no, it was not too bad. Not, not bad, okay. Not bad. But right, I, right, yeah. I, I didn't, good. so I partially, I'm not even a master butcher of names. Right. I'm now, I'm okay. Right. <laughs> I'm an average butcher of names. You butcher. <laughs> We take so, the master out. <laughs> Thank you. So Mark, though, um, is a master butcher, and we are here with him at the Monolith Monster Fest. And Mark, if you get his hat, it's, it says churrascada on it, which yeah. um, means bar- barbecue in Portuguese. Tell okay. us. So tell us about you because you're fascinating. We we ran into him at Ray Sheehan's booth, which is Barbecue Buddha, and he's friendly and starts talking to us. And it turns out this guy is incredible. I, I, okay, enough said. Talk to us. Tell so, us where you're from. I'm, I'm, I'm a French. I'm, I'm, I'm a French uh, man. Came in America in 1986, and I start in Le in New York City with Anthony Bourdain. You know, everybody knows Anthony Bourdain. Yep. And right. I moved to Philadelphia, and I opened three butcher shop downtown Philadelphia. I have a lot of passion for my for my profession. It's not a joke. I'm very critical. When I see a bad butcher, I say I say. Some people don't like it, but it's the way I was trained. I'm a master butcher. It's a respect for my profession. It's not a joke. So I do a lot of competition around the world. I went to Sydney, Australia, and I met Big Mo Kesson, the barbecue master very well known in the world so we we do we do things together we're going to Brazil in a few weeks again and so they like to use me because my knowledge about meat so you know the barbecue master need good meat and the meat has to be trained very well for the barbecue you you know that so they, they, they like to use me right so when they do an event, we, we can do a, a, a whole whole lamb, or we can do chicken or duck, and they ask me to cut the duck ready for the barbecue, you know, butterfly it, you know. Right. So it, it's, it's what I, I have a lot of passion for my for my job, for my profession. I'm 64 years old, and I don't give up. I right. keep going. I just was in Quebec City for the last two days. I was doing a butchery camp. And I flew back this morning, and I said, I'm going to see a big mo. That's why I'm here. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you, you're a man of the world, and you're here in Warminster, Pennsylvania, because this barbecue event's here. Mo Kaysen is here. And uh, you'll go anywhere, I guess, where there's good barbecue. Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, you have to go to Sao Paulo for a Shaoshkada. Uh, it's, it's so amazing. I have some photo if you want to see after. Yes. I, 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 the, the, these guys in Brazil are amazing, amazing. Uh, they have a lot of support from their government. The Brazilian government gave it a lot of money to... Because Brazil has very good beef. Very good beef. And uh, they, they are fantastic. So let, let me ask you, uh, obviously we, we have only been in, here in the United States and North America. What kind of food or meats are barbecued in other parts of the world, in Brazil, in Portugal? Uh, 
Brazil, they use a lot of beef and chicken. Their pork is not very good. In Australia, they do beef and lamb. Australia has the best lamb in the world. The best lamb in the, for me is the best. In Europe, we do more like beef and pork. You know, in this country, they do everything. Okay. Sausage, beef, and duck, and chicken, and pork, and, and lamb. And um, I know many, many pit masters in Kansas City, in, in Texas, Big Mo. And uh, I, think, I think America is doing a very good job. Very good job. Now, you had talked before about how to, you know, the, the right way to butcher things. And one of the things that they stress now, because brisket is becoming very big here, yeah. is how to trim a brisket. And, yeah. Yeah. Yes. and a, lot, a lot of butchers are doing the wrong thing. They, they trim the fat and they keep the silver. Well, if you keep the silver, the rub, if you put a rub on the brisket of barbecue sauce, the rub will not penetrate the meat. Right. It's, it's like a block. The fat, you need the fat for the moisture. Like you said, that barbecue brisket. Yes, the, 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 right. the, the brisket, the, the pork. The pulled pork was yeah. very moist. moist. Yes. So, it, and a lot of butchers, they don't know to trim right. meat for the barbecue. To trim the meat for to put in the oven is different, but for the barbecue, it's another technique. But how do you know? There's the point where you trim too much and then there's not enough. How do you know that 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 right amount where you where the fat is going to render where where you don't have too much fat that it's going to interfere with the bark forming and things like that? How do you know what's I mean, you've been doing it for years, but yeah. how can someone learn that? It's It's not easy because for me it's uh, it's no routine. It's a uh, I, I, I do that for a long time right and you can teach someone how to do it he's not going to be able to do it it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a touch it's, a right. it's, okay. a, it's, it's respect you know it's like you you don't do it because you want to do it it's like big mo when I one time I I, uh, I did something for him in Sydney Australia uh, with the pork shoulder and I did my way and he didn't like it and I, so he was very, very calm, very uh, professional. And after the show, he came to me and said, Mark, I like to do that way because that way. I said, thank you. I learned something. So you learn every day. You learn every day. You learn every day. Right. But to teach someone is not easy. Right. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing that I think everybody is learning now is that when they make ribs, you gotta take. I'm talking pork ribs. You've gotta take the back, the silver skin, uh, yeah. the, well, the, the, yeah. the off the easy, back. It's easy. Right. Yes. And and people, right? You, you use know, right. But you, I, there's so many videos now, and stuff. You use the butter knife. You use a paper towel. You rip it off. And like you said, it helps the rub to penetrate. You put your knife here. Right. Take a tire. It's right. gone. Right. Because it's 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 not glued to the bones. It just. I, it's so easy. I keep. Keep more fat in other side. Yeah, you're a master butcher. Do you enjoy barbecuing? Um, no, I, I do. I do. Okay, no, don't. I, I, I do. I do. Right. I do a lot. But I, 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 I like to make my own sausage. Okay. I like to, to do my own. Yeah, I, I do. I, 
one of my sponsors is a big green eggs. Oh, okay. okay. Right. So they, they give me some big eggs, you know, I have two home and I use when I'm home all the time. So yes, I, I enjoy barbecue, but different, different way. More like put some fresh herbs and, and garlic and onion. I, I don't like to use too much barbecue sauce. I like, like the pulled pork over there, it was, was good. You, you, you have the, the vinegar a little bit? Right. But was not too much. Right. It's not overpowering. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Yes. I like that. Right. So now where is home then? Where, where is actually I live home? in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Yeah. Okay. So for me, it's easy to fly. BWI, I can go anywhere. Right. You know. Because yeah. you said that Big Green Egg gave you a couple. If you ever get tired, uh, you, or they give you an extra. Uh, I, you know, you could just send it my way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But, I, I will tell you that it's been a pleasure speaking to you, running into you here. I, this is just one of the things I've said to Jeff time and time again. I love this podcast because I love the people we meet. And meeting you today has been a pleasure. I want to say one more thing. Yes. I'm 64 years old. I never give up. I went to Australia last year for the, the world best butcher competition. 128 butchers. I finished third. And all these young, they, they have no passion, no, no motivation. They don't right. have motivation. Like us, we have. Right. If, we are, if I do something, I do it to win. Right. Or I don't go. Agreed. So if, if you can help the young, don't give up. Don't give up. Thank you. Thank That's you. excellent advice for anyone that hears that. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. And, uh, all right, Len. That was uh, Marc Pauvert, and he was, a, 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 like you said, a master butcher. Very interesting man. Yeah, it makes me want to really find out a lot more about the whole field of, uh, you know, being a butcher. Right, yeah. Apparently there's uh, different techniques, and, you know, got to do it the right way, obviously. And some barbecue experts like meats cut a certain way. Right. And, and Mark is the, the man to do it. He is. And you could find him on Facebook. I know he's on there. And uh, I see him on the, on the Internet. So uh, I know he goes around and gives uh, presentations. And he's, he's very dedicated to his craft. So, Mark, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. And his website is markmoneybutchery.com. I'll spell it out. M-A-R-C. M-O-N-E-Y-B-U-T-C-H-E-R-Y dot com. And with that, this has really been a fun, packed episode, but we have to say goodbye. Goodbye. Before we go, don't forget to give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Visit our w- website, www baseball and bbq.weebly.com visit our facebook page visit our instagram page baseball and barbecue all spelled out with that we'll see you next time see ya McCarver pops up here's Brian the twice the new world champion and look at Brian picking up Lowlands and there is a scene that has been repeated many times in World Series history. It's a happy bunch of Tigers 
They have beaten the Cardinals 4-1, and they have replaced them as the champions of baseball. And they made some comeback. They were throwing three games to one. They were behind three runs in the first inning of game five. They came back to win. They walked in here and murdered the Cardinals yesterday. They win again today, and 28-year-old Mickey Lolich now has joined Christy Matthewson, Jack Toombs, Babe Adams, Stan Kovaleski, Harry Burkeen, Lou Burdett, and Bob Gibson as pitchers who have won three games and lost none in a World Series. And Lolich did it with two days rest and beat Bob Gibson to do it.